Well, it is good to see you tonight, and you'll pardon or excuse my secretiveness about our little trip over to Arizona. We didn't want anybody to spill the beans, so to speak, uh, by watching online. A lot of my mom's friends and my mom watched my sister as well, so we didn't want to announce anything about uh, headed to being headed to Arizona for her birthday. It wasn't just a surprise. She was stunned, and it was just tremendous to... Uh, to be able to be there, I was telling the guys in the back, it was a little odd because, you know, we had to apologize that we weren't coming, knowing full well that we were, and even called her from a hotel in Mesa, Arizona to say, gee, Mom, I'm sure sorry we can't make it when we're like 10 miles away. And uh, the next day, it couldn't come fast enough. Terry and I were both sweating bullets that... Um, we had uh, to have this little deception, so to speak, but we were certainly glad when it was over. And she was shocked, surprised, and it was just a great time. So good to be back with you. I know that you were blessed by Pastor Mike, as always, and uh, looking forward to our time together this Sunday. We are entering into some incredible chapters in the book of Acts. Not that any of the previous chapters have been less than incredible, But we are going to start looking a little bit more closely at the ministry of Paul. We've had kind of a cursory glance of many of the things that he has gone through and experienced, the places he had been, the repetitive nature of his experiences in these cities, being stoned and left for dead, and the other things that we have encountered always in an adversarial relationship with the Jews in the synagogue of every city. And things are going to begin to go a bit next level in our chapters in these coming weeks and months. And if you'd like to read ahead, we'll be in Acts 21. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 this Sunday morning. So, are you ready tonight? Here we go. We're going to continue in Samuel. We've divided it up, or I should say the church has divided it up into two books. It's one in the Hebrew Bible. But open your Bibles tonight to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And as you'll note, it's just a continuation of the narrative that we have been examining. Now, last week we looked at the collateral damage of the uh, rejection of God's plan in the life of Saul and how his actions We're affecting those of other people, and we took some time to study that in detail. And we made mention that there was a bit of an interesting twist concerning his death that we're going to look at in our in our text tonight. Now, the cause of his death is certain. The means of his death is a matter of debate. The reason for his death, or why he died, is quite clear. And we noted that last week in First Chronicles 10, 13 to 14, that Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against who? Lord. Against the Lord. Because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance, but did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he, the Lord, killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, we made the point that we had studied the fact that Paul did inquire, or Paul, Saul, did inquire of the Lord. And now we're told that he did not inquire of the Lord. And we noted that there are two different Hebrew words. One means to simply pray or ask or seek after. And the other actually means to follow or heed. And Saul, even though he asked of the Lord, 
He wasn't following the Lord, and that's why he had no answer from heaven, and that's why he rationalized that if he's going to have information from the spiritual realm, he's going to have to get it through a medium who can call up Samuel. Now, Saul's disobedience regarding the Lord's instructions concerning destroying the Amalekites is going to come into play in our text tonight, which reminds us of the lessons that we had in our time in text last Wednesday and Sunday in Psalm 32 about the importance of repentance and obedience in our lives. Should we obey God? Well, of course we should. Should we repent of our sin? Yes, indeed. And we learned last week that the ramifications of sin are not limited to the one who committed them, with Saul clearly being our example. And we also made note that failures of the saints are used as fodder by the world. And we saw this in our text last week. We know it to be true and even cited examples of some who teach aberrant things today. The prosperity gospel and other things are often used by the world as a reason to reject the church and God's plan. Now, we also noted and kind of borrowed a famous adage, even though I don't know who initially said it. I don't know how it was initially said, but it was well said. And our concluding point was every setback is a great opportunity for a comeback. Somebody say amen. Now, we were reminded that the collateral damage of Saul's sin was actually his armor bearer. It wasn't his three sons. They were soldiers. They were warriors. They were killed in battle against one of their main enemies, and that being the Philistines. And we made note also that the Philistines exploited the death of Saul and his sons when they found them dead on Mount Gilboa, and they spread the news throughout all the Philistine territories to make known that the gods of the Philistines were greater than the God of Israel. They professed this by hanging Saul's head in the temple to their god Dagon, the same god when they had placed the Ark of the Covenant inside his temple it would fall on its face and it even had its hands and head broken off. So they put Saul's head inside the temple of Dagon and they also hung his body as well as his headless son's bodies on a wall in the city of Bethshean. Now on hearing this news, we learned that the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead arose and traveled all night to recover those bodies and bring them back to Jabesh Gilead and bury them under a tamarisk tree in uh, Gilboa. Now, what caused some people to flee? Remember, we had a record that people, when they heard of the death of Saul and his sons and the advances of the Philistine army, they abandoned their cities and they fled. And the Philistines then began to occupy that territory. And yet this same event caused valiant men to stand up, travel all night and recover the bodies of their king and his sons and again buried them under the tree, the tamarisk tree. Now, the difference between the two groups, one group would flee and the other group would arise, is that they made a decision rather than having a setback be a discouragement to them. They saw it as an opportunity for a comeback and to stand up and do something valiant for the glory of the Lord and Israel. Now, our chapter tonight finds David and his men back in Ziklag, the city in which he lived for some 14 months. 
as uh, with the reputation of a defector. And uh, he and the, or the news of Saul and his three sons arrives to David and his men via an Amalekite messenger. Now we're going to examine David's response in detail, but our chapter concludes with the first indication of why David is often referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And this presence or the presence of this poetic lament that closes out our chapter is going to give us our title. And it is actually the name of one of the ministries here at the church. And our title for the night is Songs in the Night. Our title tonight is songs in the night. Now, this is a biblical phrase. It's actually found in Job 35, 9 to 10, where we're told because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out, they cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night? Now, these are the words of one of Job's three friends. With friends like these guys, who needs enemies, I think, is an appropriate (coughs) statement. In this case, it's a man named Elihu, who was actually correcting Job because he believed that Job's adversities were because Job was a self-righteous man. He was a man filled with pride, so he was correcting and rebuking him. Now, his counsel was an error because Job was described as a blameless man who was upright in all of his ways. And the one who gave this testimony of Job was no less than the Lord himself. And you can find that in Job 1.8. So the assumption that he was afflicted because he was self-righteous or full of pride was certainly inappropriate on the part of Elihu. Well, misguided as he may have been, he still makes the point that gives us our title, and that is that the Lord does give songs in the night. The night obviously representing, (coughs) excuse me, the dark times in our lives. Now, David would also write in Psalm 30, 10 to 12, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. To the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Now, one thing to take note of is that David did not arrive at this place in our chapter. This chapter, or Psalm 30, I should say, is actually looking at hindsight back on his experiences and noting that the Lord has turned his seasons of mourning into dancing and taken off the clothes of mourning and instead clothed him with gladness. Now, I think we all recognize that as Christians, we have hard times in life at times. We have all experienced life-altering circumstances in one form or another. We all face trials and tribulations. Amen? And we do so even as the people of God. And the Lord also gives us songs in the night, even as David's is from a place of sorrow and heartache. And it's clearly a lament. And what we'll find is it is absent of any direct praise to the Lord, though it is certainly suggested. It's a song from a dark time. It's a song for a dark time as he mourns the loss of the king and his dear friend and brother, 
Jonathan. So, would you stand and read with me, please, from 2 Samuel. We'll start with verses 1 through 16, a rather lengthy uh, beginning into our chapter, and then we'll look at this song or psalm of lament in a moment. Verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? The young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, There was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he had looked behind him, he called, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. So did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You may be seated. Now, if you remember, at the end of 1 Samuel, we found a record of Paul's death with no mention of the scene we have in front of us. And commentators are evenly divided regarding the story presented by the young Amalekite. Now, some say this was just a fabrication in order to gain favor with David. It was a lie that was propagated in order to receive a reward from David for killing his adversary. Others say that after Saul fell on his sword, his life was still in him. And even though his armor bearer fell on his sword and died, even though his armor bearer assumed that Saul was dead, he wasn't actually dead. And that the story that the Amalekite young man repeated to David is what actually happened. Now, either way, the young man is identified as an Amalekite. The very people that Saul was ordered by God to destroy completely, and yet he disobeyed the Lord. And this young man brought proof of Saul's death in the form of the armband of the king as well as the king's crown. And he brought them to David with outward signs of his own mourning or feigned mourning, I should say, with his 
dirt on his head and his clothes torn, just as David and company will do, as we'll see in a moment. Now, the account presented by the young Amalekite, whether it was true or not, still gave David the information that the end result was Saul was dead. David and his men then tear their clothes and mourn, wept and fasted until evening of that day. Now, in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8, we're told to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to what? To kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence, a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, a time of peace. Now, Solomon, if you remember, was given exceptional wisdom by God because he did not ask of the Lord length of days or prosperity. And the Lord said, because you have asked for wisdom to rule my people, not only am I going to give you greater wisdom than any human being, I'm also going to make you the richest man in history. Now, it's interesting that we note these observations of Solomon, that he says that there are different seasons in life. And within those seasons, there are times to weep. There are times to laugh. There are times to mourn. And in contrast, times to dance. Now, Solomon is not suggesting by any means that these seasons are simultaneous, but rather they are like the seasons of every calendar year and seasons change. Now, if you remember, David and his men wept when they returned to Ziklag and found out that their families had been carried away by the Amalekites. Then they laughed with joy when they recovered not just their families, but also all of their possessions as well as the plunder that the Amalekites had taken from the Philistines. Now they find themselves in a season of Morning, and we'll see in the next chapter a time of dancing, so to speak, is on the horizon as David is finally anointed as king. Now, his anointing as king is followed by alternating times of war and peace throughout his life, just as Solomon, his son, would later observe and write. As the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the initial time of mourning comes to an end at nightfall, David asks the young Amalekite, how is it that you weren't afraid to kill the anointed king of Israel? And then he has the young man put to death. He makes the declaration that your blood is on your own head, whether you're lying or telling the truth, because from his own mouth came the declaration that he was the one that actually killed King Saul. Now, Obviously, I don't have to hope I don't have to say to anybody, we're not to kill those who cause us pain or sorrow or tribulation. Somebody say amen to that. It's interesting. I was thinking back this afternoon. Uh, we were in Malawi uh, doing a pastor's conference. Many of you who were with us at the time so graciously sponsored pastors and their wives to come and spend a week at this conference. And we did a Q&A session and it was kind of curious, the uh, first question that came, 
his, uh, was from a young man seated in the front row with his wife. And he said, um, if we find a witch in our village, our custom is to kill him. What do you say? Well, you don't kill him. And I say that first of all. Well, listen, this is not how we deal with those who are causes of pain or tribulation in our own life. And we need to recognize that David is exercising his authority as God's appointed king and Saul's confessed killer is actually executed. Now, here's the first of three things I want you to consider tonight from this very dark and sad chapter. Listen this evening. Here's the first thing I want you to know. God's word is still right when everything goes wrong. God's word is still right when everything goes wrong. Now, God's word will never be wrong. Amen. But things go wrong in life sometimes, don't they? Hello? Things go wrong in life sometimes. I've shared with you before. I've had those seasons. I know you have too, where you felt like, no, I'm not under Moses' law, but I seem to be under Murphy's. Because whatever can go wrong will go wrong. Now, if you're thinking, how did you arrive at that conclusion from these verses? I'm glad you're thinking that because I can now answer that. Now, David didn't say to the Amalekite, after Saul, all that Saul did to me, he reaped what he had sown. Nor did he turn and say to his men, you know what, Saul should have stepped down when the Lord said he had rejected him as king through Samuel and the Lord had actually chosen me. His blood is on his own head. Instead, David did what he had done all along based on what he believed all along. And his actions with Saul were founded on Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Boy, that's got a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? Aren't these the words of Jesus to us and to Israel? Are you here tonight? Now, listen to what 1 Samuel 26, 7 to 10 told us. That David and Abishai, I came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp, and his spear stuck in the ground by his head, and Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai, I said to David, God has delivered your enemy into his hand this day. And now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I'll not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, I do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. Now, Saul was not very neighborly to David. And David did not let Saul's actions determine David's actions. Even at Saul's death, David stuck to what the word of God said. And as rightful king, he took vengeance on the one and had executed the man who admitted to killing Saul. Now, I think if we are careful students of the word, and I know you are, we could ask the question, how was an Amalekite supposed to know what God's word said? Or why should he be held accountable for what he didn't know? Now, we may not be able to answer those questions directly, but it does remind us that we have a responsibility to tell the world the plan, purposes, and word of God. And we have a responsibility to live according to and therefore honor the word of God, not just before the Lord, but in the eyes of the world. God's word is still right 
even when everything goes wrong. Now, let's keep going and look at 17 to 22 and get into this song of the bow as its title. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Now, at David's lament, he mentions that this is recorded in the book of Jasher, and he gives the title of this lament as the Song of the Bow. Now, the Song of the Bow is a bit of a double entendre because Saul's tribe, the Benjamites, were known to be proficient with the bow and arrow. And we see evidence of this in First Chronicles 12, 1 and 2, where we're told these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish, And they were among the mighty men, helpers in war, armed with bows, using both right hand and the left and hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. They were a Benjamin, Saul's brethren. Second Chronicles would add in 1717, a Benjamin, Eliada, a mighty man of valor, and with him 200,000 men armed with bow and shield. Now... Jasher means the righteous. And we don't know much about this book other than it's mentioned again in Joshua 10, 13. But it is the book of the righteous. And the song of the bow was recorded in the book of the righteous. And David instructed that it be taught to the children of Judah from generation to generation. Obviously in remembrance of this tragic event. Now we'll find in this lament three times the phrase... How the mighty have fallen. And David opens this song in the night with an allusion to the death of Saul and three of his sons on Mount Gilboa at the mention of the beauty of Israel, the royal family, being slain on the high places. He then makes a proclamation that this event is not to become a song of victory in the Philistine territories. And he mentions two of them by name, Gath and Ashkelon. And then figuratively, he pronounces a curse on Mount Gilboa when he says, let no dew nor rain come upon you and nothing that could be offered as an offering, meaning no fruit or grain to grow there. And then he says, because the shield of the mighty is cast away there. And he's obviously referring to the shield of Saul and his family. Now, it was disastrous for a soldier to lose his shield on the battlefield because it assured one almost certainly of death. And then he adds in verse 22 that both Saul and Jonathan did not refrain from engaging the enemy as Jonathan's bow found its mark, as did the sword of Saul up until their deaths. Now, remember, this is David's song in the night about a man who pursued him and sought to kill him for over 20 years. 
And because of Saul, David had lived in the wilderness and hid in caves because Saul was jealous of him and wanted him dead. Now we're reminded by Jesus in Matthew 5, 11 to 16, as he opened the Sermon on the Mount following the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That's what we always do, right? For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He makes this illustration. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Now, David was not going to let Saul's sinful actions against him and against his anointing and calling by God diminish his obedience to God's word or cause a disregard for God's anointing of Saul as king. And as we noted earlier, David's mindset was if God wants to take Saul out, he's certainly capable of doing so. And we read in First Chronicles that the Lord indeed was responsible for the death of Saul. Now, Here's our point again, and we're going to move in, I think, to a little more personal application for most of us at some point in life. And our second thing to consider here tonight is just this. Listen, when life brings you things you will never forget, remember the things that will never change. When life brings you things you will never forget, remember the things that will never change. Now, David remembered that God had anointed Saul as king. And that Saul and Jonathan were valiant in battle. And their loss was something that he would never forget. And he told others that they should not forget it either. Now I have to say over the years, I've been rather shocked and disappointed at some of the things that I've heard people say to those who have suffered tragedy or trauma in life. Some have said things like, you know, it's time for you to move on or just get over it. It's time for you to cease the mourning and just get past it. Or they make the assumption that people ought to act like something traumatic never, ever happened if they really trusted God. Now, listen tonight. No one, say no one. No one will ever get over the loss of a child or a loved one in this life. And it is those seasons when what is unchanging has to be remembered in order to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil for the Lord is with them. Now, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians four thirteen to 18, I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have died or fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, I believe that, do you? Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, next word, comfort one another with these words. Now listen, Paul doesn't say to those in Thessaloniki, just get over it about your lost loved one. He doesn't say you've been sorrowful long enough. But what he does say is that in your sorrow, remember you have hope. The hope of seeing your believing loved ones again, even though you're going to miss him every day until you do, which is certainly implied in what he said. And may I remind us all that what was true in times of light is still true in songs of the night. Some songs are sad songs. And they will be sung from generation to generation, as David declared. I couldn't help but think in studying this chapter, those of you who are 35-ish like me, remember the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I think most people remember where we were. Most people remember what they were doing. Most people have the scene, like a Polaroid picture etched in their mind, and they remember all of these things. And it is a sad remembrance for us as a nation. And that's what David is talking about here. That's what David is instilling to Judah here. But even the songs in the night must be sung with the unchanging truths of God and his word in mind. David lamented because Saul was dead. This sorrow was to be remembered through the singing of the song of the bow. And this, I believe, is essential to not letting the enemies of God triumph and rejoice over our sorrows. We still need to sing songs in the night based on God's word, even though they are sad songs indeed. The valiant men of Jabesh Gilead silenced the Philistine songs of victory by their incursion into the city unnoticed when they recovered the bodies of the royal family, at least the part who had perished in battle. And because through sorrow and defeat had come to Israel, or even though sorrow and defeat had come to Israel, they were still the chosen people of God. And even when sorrow comes our way, we are still the chosen people of God. God's word is still true, even when life is hard and difficult. Somebody say, Amen. Now listen, not every song is a happy, clappy one. Some are songs in the night, but they too must be sung with the unchanging truths of God's word in our hearts and in our minds, even though they are sung in sorrow. Now, let's wrap up our chapter tonight and finish this song of the bow. David said in 23, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love for me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Now, we need to remember that Saul had some strong words for Jonathan 
Because Jonathan had actually committed himself to the kingship of David and in essence vacated the throne in his father's eyes through his loyalty to David. But here father and son were not divided, but they were united in the common cause of fighting on behalf of Israel. They fought swift and strong in battle as father and son. Now, David reminds the daughters of Israel, meaning the women of Israel, that under Saul's reign, there was prosperity for the nation and they were to weep over the death of their king. He then records the second, how the mighty are fallen. And then his subject turns to his dear friend and brother, Jonathan. And he mentions his personal distress over Jonathan's death and the wonderful brotherly love that the two men shared that had surpassed the love of women. Now, the phrase surpassing the love of women simply means that the love between these two men exceeded the norms of love between men in the sense that women generally love more readily and deeply than men. And he was saying, even in David's uh, love life, so to speak, or his marriages, uh, weren't all that hot. So understanding what he is saying is simply to recognize there was a kindred spirit between the two men. Now in 1 Samuel 18, 1 to 4, we were told when he had finished speaking to Saul, he being David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day, that being David, and would not let him go to his home, uh, go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And the giving of these things, the robe, armor, sword and bow and belt were symbolic gestures of submission to David's authority as king. Now, listen this evening. There is nothing that indicates that there was a homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan, even though it is often used by that community to validate the Christian homosexual love relationship. Listen, the Hebrew language won't allow it. The context won't allow it. And the man after God's own heart wouldn't practice it. And God would have never given him that title if that were true for him. Jonathan was a man who, unlike his father, obeyed God even at the expense of his own future reign. A fact that infuriated Saul. And yet, here in the day of battle, all differences in the family are set aside. And father and son are swift and strong in battle together, even unto death. And then David closes a song in the night with a third repeat of how the mighty have fallen. And he adds that the weapons of war have perished, meaning that they were ineffective. They were destroyed and defeated. The weapons carried by Saul, Jonathan, and the Israelite army. Now we need to borrow from next week's text just for a moment to arrive at our last point. We'll find next week in 2 Samuel 2, 1 to 4, 8. It happened after this, after the things we just read, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, remember, he is in Philistine territory. He's in Ziklag. He inquires of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? Should I go back into Israeli territory? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he said to him, to Hebron. 
So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam, uh, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, remember, between the promise and the fulfillment was nearly a quarter century. David was told he would be king, and he became king some 25 years later. He became king of one tribe, not all of Israel. Now, we'll talk more about that, but let's get to our last consideration about this song in the night. Now, listen this evening. Our concluding point is simply this. Only God can bring good out of something there is nothing good in. Only God can bring good out of something there is nothing good in. There are things that happen in life that are not good. But God is. Now remember that verse, time heals all wounds? I don't either. It's in the same book that says God helps those who help themselves. I think that's somewhere in Fleshalonians. That's the actual uh, book. Now, I want you to think about this. It was the death of Saul that opened the door for David to ascend to the throne and then eventually to be the king over all of Israel. But there was a lapse of time between the promise and fulfillment and even a process after David was initiated. I call him Dave. We tight. That was a joke. Apparently, I'll scratch that one. That wasn't in my notes. But. Now, even after he is anointed initially as king of Judah, there was time and it was an incremental process and it wasn't without battles that David finally became king over all of Israel. Now, I was thinking about something that's actually in Dancing with the Scars and it's a reminder to us all that there's a difference between a wound and a scar, both physically as well as spiritually and emotionally. Now, a wound is something that demands our full attention and care. If someone is wounded severely, the wound gets all the attention and everything is focused upon treating the wound. Yet eventually the wound becomes a scar and it changes from something that demands constant attention and care to something that is a reminder of a past trauma. Now the scar at first is even painful. And when you bump something that is just healing, you're reminded of the pain of the initial injury. But as time goes on, the pain lessens and the scar may even fade to a degree. But it is a lifelong reminder that something happened that was traumatic and painful. And that's what David is dealing with here. And listen, we are incapacitated when, when severely wounded. But when the wound becomes a scar, function then returns, even though the reminder is always there. And we know from Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to those who love God. There's the exclusivity of our point. There's something that we only as Christians enjoy because God can work together for good all things to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Listen, there are some things that there is just nothing good about them. Yet, God in his majesty and power can bring good from them, even though we may bear the scar of them for the whole of our life. And David revisits the phrase, how the mighty are fallen, because it was something that struck him down to the soul. It was... 
a contrast to what he had experienced. Remember, this is the giant slayer. This is the teenage boy who killed Goliath. And in David's mind, the reason that shook him so as it did all the way down to his soul is because in his mind, the mighty shouldn't fall. The mighty ought to prevail. Have you ever had something happen or noticed something or observed something in life that doesn't make any sense to us and it's forced upon us or someone we know or someone we care about? We often think the thought or we've heard it or even said it that the young shouldn't die, the young should live. Or maybe we think the marriage shouldn't fail, the marriage should succeed. And on and on the list goes of things that can shake us down to our souls. And yet, God can even work these tragic and traumatic circumstances into something good in us and around us. Are you here tonight? Now, Romans 8, 35 to 38, Paul said this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, identifying that there would be one who would try. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, for as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul didn't say because you are in Christ Jesus our Lord, there won't be tribulation. He didn't say there won't be distress. He didn't say there won't be persecution or famine. He said, for your sake, we're killed all day long and is accounted as sheep. And we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet even in these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, I think we've all probably heard or even said the familiar adage, what God leads you to, God will get you through. Is that true? Well, of course it's true. But... Maybe in light of what we just read, we should also add this to our list of sayings. The painful things that happen to you, God will love you all the way through. Listen, not all songs are happy. Some songs are songs in the night. But God will love us through them. And he will even bring good from something that there is nothing good in. And listen, it rarely, if ever, happens right away, but it does happen all the time, no matter how long it takes. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He loves us all the way right into heaven. Now listen, you may be thinking this message tonight doesn't apply to you directly right now, but it actually does. Because we all encounter people in life who have suffered serious trauma, and they need hope. And they need to hear that God will love them through this and somehow in his miraculous way bring good into their lives because of it. And this is why David could later write in Psalm 43, 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. Listen to this. The help of my what? My countenance my outlook, and my God. I couldn't help but think of the best way to conclude our time together tonight 
would be with the ironic blessing, reminding us, and I can hear Pastor Chuck's voice saying and singing, the Lord bless you and keep you. Amen. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom or peace. Somebody say amen. And Father, we are thankful tonight for this difficult and painful and sad chapter. And we thank you that you remind us that not all songs are happy songs. But Lord, as David called the people to remember the death of Saul and his sons. And even as it shook him, as we see three times, he talks about the mighty being fallen. And it was just something he couldn't seem to get his head around. And Lord, we have those same experiences in life as well. But we thank you that like with David, you are with us. And we can remember that somehow, even in the things that there's nothing good about or in, you can work them together for our good because we love you and are, and are the called according to your purpose. So help us, Lord, to look for those things, even as we experience our own life difficulties and tribulations, distresses and famines, and even as they are being experienced over in the Middle East at this very moment and in Africa as well. Lord, there are Christians dying by the sword. So, Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to your people. And, Lord, even in the midst of the moments like David has here, even when things don't make sense, your word remains true. And you do not leave us or forsake us. So we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for speaking to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to go our way with our eyes fixed on you, knowing that you'll love us through everything. We go through in life. We give you thanks for these things. In Jesus' name, and all the Wednesday night warriors said, Amen. Amen.